Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone, to the New Books Network. My name is Rosemary Ponenzuela Vicente, and I'll be your host for today's episode. I'm speaking to Dr. Rebecca Friedman about her new book, Modernity, Domesticity, and Temporality in Russia, Time at Home, which was published in 2020 by Bloomsbury Publishing. Dr. Friedman is Associate Professor of History and Director of the Wilsonian Public Humanities Lab at Florida International University. She is the author of Masculinity, Autocracy. Thank you so much for having me today. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, You're obviously the author of Masculinity, Autocracy, and the Russian University and co-editor for a number of volumes about gender in Russia. You also just so happen to be my advisor and one of the (laughs) kindest humans that I know. So I'm really excited for this conversation. And it's a special treat for me. Well, same here. It's not every day that one of your students interviews you. So I'm thrilled to have been asked. Thank you and honored. It's great to kind of flip the table a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I'm nervous. (laughs) Don't be, don't be. No, this is going to be fun. So before we begin, can you talk a little bit about your background in Russian history and what made you want to pursue like Russian and Soviet studies? Sure. So um, I guess I might as well tell the real story, which I'm not sure if it makes me look good or doesn't make me look good. But basically, when I was going to college, I decided I wanted to learn a language and a language that other people didn't know. So I can remember that I signed up for intensive Russian language class at the orientation my freshman year um, at University of Michigan. And so I basically just started learning Russian right away, 10 hours a week. It was, you know, two thirds of my credit for my entire freshman year. And so when I started my sophomore year of college, I was already in fourth year Russian. So I did like a very fast track and I loved it. And one of the reasons probably why Russian appealed to me so much is I have a personal background, not so much in Russia but a kind of classic, you know, um, East European Jewish background, which includes good pale of settlement on the one hand and then Poland on the other. So there was actually Russian spoken by my grandparents to some degree, as well as Yiddish and Polish and so forth. So it was not entirely uh, anathema or strange to me. I also think I was a budding leftist. I hate to say it, but it's true at the time. <laughs> and that's something you can't say loudly in Miami, but it's true. And I think at the time, um, growing up in New Jersey in the uh, 80s, it felt like it was the, the right thing to do from the political perspective as well. <laughs> so that's the real answer. And then once I studied Russian language and literature in college, I just absolutely fell in love with the language and the literature And I tacked on history as my second major my senior year. Um, And I spent a semester in Moscow in 1988, which for those of you who remember was a really exciting time to be in Russia with Gorbachev at the helm. 
Everyone was literally on the street corners talking about all the issues, you know, during Perestroika and Glasnost. I got to witness that. So there was really no turning back at that point. That sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It was awesome. (laughs) That sounds absolutely awesome. And I feel like I think for for people who are kind of going into fields that are sort of outside of, um, or that maybe they don't have such a personal connection to, sometimes those Mm -hmm. kind of like inception stories are very similar across the board. Like you take a class and you're like, wow, this is really cool. And and that's what, you know, that's what kind of led you down that rabbit hole. And, you know, 20 years later, you're still, you know, loving Russian and Soviet history. Well, more than 20, my dear. (laughs) I appreciate it, however. (laughs) Touche. So this book is very different from your first first book. Obviously, Mm -hmm. in your first one, you really talked a lot about gender. And there's a lot of gender in this book. And we can kind of talk about that a little bit later. But what made you want to tell a story about time? Sure. Um, Well, so there's a couple of ways to answer that question. I mean, the first of which I set out... um, this book and the second big kind of monographic project to really link to the first one in ways in which it ends up not (laughs) in some ways, because one of the chapters in the masculinity book was about, um, essentially, I think it was called the loyal, what was it called? Something about the sun. It was about being a kind of like loyal sun and the ways in which notions of domesticity um, were actually quite important to create a kind of normative idea about masculinity in the early 19th century in Russia. So I was very interested in the notion of domesticity in um, the Russian context, especially as it relates to the kind of big yet to be answered question about the degree to which bourgeois values entered into kind of Russian and then Soviet culture. So that was the question I kind of brought to project number two. And I fast forwarded until the end of the 19th century when I started to do research Um, It was less archival than the first book, so I was really reading published materials primarily, um, and I can talk about why that is if you're interested. Um, But as I was reading magazines and prescriptive tracts and looking at images and so forth, the notion of time and temporality really came from the primary sources themselves. So, for example, the kind of like nostalgic, the first part of the book is really about the kind of nostalgic look backward at the gentry estate and the kind of domestic ideas that resided within the um, gentry estate from the vantage point of the 20th century, what did it look like in the 18th century? So it was a kind of look backwards into the past to understand these kind of ideas about home. And very similarly, when I looked at um, the idea about, about domesticity in the kind of urban modern apartment uh, as at the end of the 19th, beginning of 20th century, of course, all of these peasants are moving to the city. And even though none of them could afford, a few of them could actually mm-hmm. afford to create these kind of semi-bourgeois homes, there were certainly kind of those discourses around that people could aspire to. And there too, time played a central role. Because the emphasis was on, for example, notions of efficiency and doing things quickly and in modern ways. So again, like the present invested in time. And then finally, the last was is about the Soviet period. And of course, the communal apartment and right. domesticity in that context is about the future. And did you always, or did you at least think that you were always going to like move into the Soviet era? Or did you think you were going to keep your project kind of at like, you know, the beginning of the 20th century, not really like inching towards the Soviet mm-hmm. era, but not really kind of crossing that divide? 
it's funny, like academics are funny, you know, being among them. It felt like such a leap, you know, as somebody who was trained yeah, yeah. in Imperial Russia to like all of a sudden venture into the Soviet era. Yeah, exactly. you know, yeah. Do I dare or do I know anything or how is it different? You know, so it was, so I really like your question because it's like, yes and no. On the one hand, it did feel like a leap of faith. Can I do this? Like some self-questioning there, which is funny for non-academics because it's like, who cares? It's a matter of 10 years, you know? But actually, the historiography yeah, is about the difference. In fact, even the sources themselves and so forth. Yeah. But one of the other things was at the time, there was just beginning, if you ask me to come up with the titles, I may, I'll try my best. But at the time that I was starting this project, which was a minute ago, um, historians were really beginning to kind of push against this kind of hard and fast revolutionary divide in the stories that they were telling about, about modern Russia. So a lot of historians were beginning to kind of traverse the divide and looking at, of course, issues of continuity and rupture, but asking the question and finding it out, if you know what I mean. So that impulse really, in some ways, reflected the historiographic moment. And it worked out really well because I needed the Soviet era to look toward the future. So in fact, it made the arc of the book, if I do say so myself, quite nice. <laughs> yeah. And how, um, you know, you mentioned kind of methodology early and obviously your book mm -hmm. relies heavily on print sources, but how do you study time? Like I was honestly, like as, as I was reading and I was kind of like reading like the preface and stuff, I was kind of really interested in the way that you talked about how you tackle time. Like how do yeah. you look at time and print sources? How do you really kind of create an assessment of how people thought about the future and the past and their present. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I really kind of love about history and, and it is the way in which it allows us to ask like kind of big philosophical questions or the ways in which it allows us to assume nothing. So it allows us to approach any concept that seems so terribly fixed to kind of untether it, right? And to say, wait a minute, like, like gender, for example, in the first book. So the idea at the time of studying masculinity, like turning the lens on men and saying, well, we know that there's something called femininity and there are normative discourses and women are taught to behave one way and use those discourses if you kind of go with the agency approach and so forth to behave in other ways. And the institutions are undergirded by these ideas. That ultimately is a kind of was a kind of radical notion, right? So you kind of untether gender and sex, right? from one another to look at kind of discursive approaches, cultural approaches, how context and culture matter. Ideas are kind of born within context. I love that stuff. So the idea that like something as fundamental as time, and I obviously am far from the first person to have thought of this. I mean, from like Derrida to many people, like Carolyn right. Steedman has a beautiful book on dust, which yeah, is also yeah. about time. You mentioned that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I know, I think, well, I read once I asked students to read that in a seminar at one point, but um, just to kind of start to shake up the idea that time itself is fixed so that a particular society measures minutes differently, for example, mm -hmm. than another society might at another time, right? Another moment, rather don't overuse the word time, right? At another moment, or that, for example, uh, the very notion of being nostalgic and thinking about the ways in which, say, the past helped to define the present. And so that mm -hmm. very nostalgia 
becomes part of like present understanding of today because we wouldn't be today without then, nor would we be without tomorrow. That the ways in which they're all kind of interlinked and layered on top of one another, which of course is the argument I make in the book ultimately. Um, so, I mean, time came from the sources, the language of the sources themselves, like again, efficiency, science, like having the shelf in the kitchen, make sure it's close to like the table so that, you know, the, it's always a woman, even in the Soviet period, a woman right. <laughs> who is you know, taking the dishes from the shelf to the table can do it efficiently. It's not particularly a Russian idea. It's very much European American across the board, a kind of modern idea of efficiency. I was also always very interested in the relationship between kind of modern notion, modern Russian notions of time and their relationship to kind of non-Russian or the West, as it were. Yeah, and not, not to mention the book I found really interesting too. Mm-hmm. Just the mm-hmm. way that like Russians kind of um, almost like conceptualize the West and how things function in the West. I, I, I always find that so interesting to just kind of think about the other through the, you know, the imaginary. Yes. Right, and how the West itself becomes completely made up, as we know, right. and, and becomes very kind of uniform in the idea when we know well that like Germany is not the same as England, it's not the same as France, and not, it's the, not same the same as, as the U.S. Yeah, exactly, and it's different for you know women, men, children of different classes, you know, races, ethnicities, so forth and so on, geographies. So, but it does get kind of fixed in the imaginary, just like the gentry estate gets fixed in the imaginary at the, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, right. And so in your first chapter, you talk about, um, your first chapter is titled Russian modernity through time and space. And you and I have had a number of conversations, obviously about material spaces and the importance of home. Mm-hmm. And this book obviously deals theoretically um, with those topics. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how um, domestic interiors and temporality kind of intersect. Like, what do you mean by this in this first mm-hmm. chapter? And how have the scholarship really kind of tackled this in the past? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, in some ways, it seems kind of bold to say, but I don't know that the kind of wedding of domestic mm-hmm. interiors and temporality that 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 equation, I think, is my own, <laughs> if right. you will, which is to say, I found those intersections in the sources themselves rather than relying on an existing historiography about those topics and the ways in which they intersect. I mean, there's a huge historiography, obviously, on... About the home and... Exactly. Yes. And, and And part of that often has notions of temporality embedded in it, like I said, which might include kind of, you know, if you're looking at the kind of more radical spaces, they include kind of communalism as a way toward a brighter utopian future, right? And, and in France, you know, whether it's in France in the 19th century or whether it's in the Soviet Union in the early 20th century, that those kind of, that matchup between domestic interior as a space upon which to kind of project a kind of utopian future, right? So that, that's an example of the kind of wedding. So certainly historians have written about those questions, as have they written about nostalgia. I mean, you know, be, yeah. especially in the Soviet context, there's a gazillion books about nostalgia, some of which touch on, of course, the role, for example, of here's just a thought that came to mind. I'm going to forget the name ah, of it. But in Russian, it's the maybe you'll know it's the like shop, the little bag that like um, netted bag. Yeah, the. Ah. Like that you take to the 
Yeah, you oh go to the market. To the market, yeah. yeah. And especially like black market. Mm-hmm. Or you think about like um, the plastic plant in Svetlana Boim's work, yeah. right? And so she certainly writes a lot about about domestic interiors and various kind of projections of utopia in some ways. And also, um, of course, not only utopia, but the everyday and the kind of crassness of the everyday, um, which weighs on notions of domesticity necessarily. You know, and you had asked about gender and, and, you know, I would have liked gender to kind of come out as, you know, maybe the third or fourth (laughs) word in the title and been more prominent. But the sources really focus primarily um, on like women being the actors in the domestic sphere. Mm-hmm. And I kept looking and actually I gave a paper once because it was a panel on masculinity. And I was like, oh, I can do that before knowing <laughs> what the sources said. And actually, there was very little of what I found. So it was more kind of silences in the sources than anything, which, you know, maybe is not surprising. But um, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's really interesting. And I think it may be even like, the idea of not including gender in the title might actually even work in your favor, because there are so many kind of gender dynamics that even work within that, that I think Mm -hmm. we just happen to assume it's always women. And you do talk a lot about men, and you do talk a lot about like that kind of dynamic within the home and just decorating and things like that. It's it's very interesting the way you kind of phrase it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So moving into obviously like your book obviously discusses it, it starts <laughs> off at the turn of the century and then it moves into the Soviet era. Mm-hmm. So in that early phase in that first chapter, how did Russians at the turn of the century understand time and physical space? Yeah. Um, well, the so the book just to back up for a second, and then I'll mm-hmm. answer the question more directly. The book, the kind of meat of the book is really three chapters, as you know. Yeah. And um, it's a kind of arc that is supposed to follow past, present, future, Mm -hmm. right? And so the past, the physical space is, like I said, the estate, right, largely. The present is largely that urban apartment. And then the future is largely the communal apartment, which might actually be to one degree or other because the estates sometimes are not actually in the countryside. Some of them are mansions in the city, which mm-hmm. by the way, were kind of divided up by this early Soviet in the early Soviet period to create these apartments that were communal, interestingly enough. So <clears throat> in theory, some of the spaces might actually have been the same. Um, I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but it strikes me that that's something that's interesting to think about. So the first part of the book really uh, allowed me to think a lot about from how from the vantage point of 1900, 1910s, um, you know, Russians, as it were, really urban Russians, educated primarily Russians, were very, very focused on the kind of the estate that was no more and mm-hmm. the kind of interior and also the exterior of estates that were no more, that that were often kind of dilapidated, or to some degree, there were also some who um, form like organizations in order to keep the estates alive, to keep them going and so forth. So there was a kind of civic uh, piece to that as well, where you had civic organizations wanting to keep the estates um, alive and all of that. Um, And there was a sense that something was somehow being lost at this moment when, like I said, you have just kind of hyper-industrialization, hyper-urbanization. 
So there was a kind of longing for what was like kind of Chekhov-esque, if you will, yeah. right? You know, so the the vast spaces that were no longer there when you have people kind of huddled in the corner of an apartment because of the poverty of industrial life and so forth. Um, and so there really the emphasis on time has much to do with, with nostalgia and a kind of nostalgia that, you know, we'll get to this, but that comes back around again when we think about kind of Russia today. Yeah, and I found that part really interesting. And I remember there was, um, I'm forgetting the, the person's name, but there was someone that you referenced that just kept, um, I, I don't remember if it was in a quote or if it was just maybe something that I picked up while I was reading the book, but it was this, exactly what you were talking about, this kind of like longing and like nostalgia for estates. And yes. I think it was in reference to peasants and peasant life and the importance of peasant life. Yes. Yes, it was like, I think it might be Haruzina, if I'm not mistaken. There were a couple of diaries and memoirs that I relied on rather heavily in that first part, because I wanted the kind of more textured language of describing the day to day life. Um, And there, there was this like, absolutely kind of nostalgic childhood memory, really. So in that way, it's temporal, too, because right, it's like the the past in an individual's life, right? Yeah. If you think about an individual life as a kind of temporal arc, um, that part of that was a kind of romanticizing of the peasants that might have interacted with, you know, members of the gentry on the estate. I mean, we know that all the violence of day-to-day life that was, the, in fact, very much part of, of the 18th, 19th centuries. But a lot of that does not... Um, come to light in these nostalgic portraits. Right. And can you talk a little bit more about like the print sources and the periodicals that you dealt with? Like, what were they? I know, like, specifically, like, you, like, I think that yeah. is in the second chapter, you really start kind of like honing in on like specific periodicals, like you mentioned Genshina. Um, right. What are the other kind of like prescriptive texts or periodicals that you kind of drew from for this? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, we know this from the work of Catriona Kelly, who writes mm-hmm. about kind of prescriptive literature, but there's a kind of boom in prescriptive literature at the during this very time when, you know, a lot of people are living these really difficult lives in the city. Um, and there's all these texts circulating about how one is actually supposed to live this much more kind of bourgeois looking lifestyle. Um, and those come in the form of deliberately prescriptive texts. This is how you are to behave and kind of magazines that were a lot of women's magazines emerge in that period as well, the 1910s and so forth. Jenshina being just among among one. There's Hazyayek. I can't even remember off the top of my head, but there were probably um, five to seven that I, I uh, used very regularly that had runs of anywhere from like 10 to 40 years, actually. Some of them, interestingly enough, ran into the Soviet period and started to change a little bit once the Soviets took over, but the magazines actually um, remained. And there, that, oh, that's right. And then there was this one very beautiful one. It's funny. I haven't thought about my book in a long time. <laughs> you remember the name of the really beautiful one? There was one. Oh, mm. so funny. I should have my book in front of me. It was. It's a glossy <coughs> kind of arty periodical. This is more for the first chapter that had these portraits of the states that were just gorgeous and it's the kind of periodical that probably not very many people could afford to see but it existed and it kind of kept up for you know 10 20 years and it's absolutely gorgeous but these the other ones that play a more important part 
in uh, the middle part that's about the the apartments and so forth are really uh, the kind of like, you know, weekly, every other week kind of Mm -hmm. newspaper type publications that women would have read to find out what they should be feeding. There were recipes or like um, home, like homeopathic things to do when your child has a runny nose or, you know, really kind of day-to-day advice uh, primarily for women in the home. And how did women um, contribute to these conversations? I know, like, obviously, like, at the turn of the century, there's a lot of conversations about health, about what modernity means. We haven't talked about that word yet. (laughs) I'm always kind of hesitant to talk about it because it's like, you know, a rabbit hole you fall into and you never come out of. Um, But, like, how did they really kind of um, contribute to these conversations about health and modernity, obviously, like, efficiency and what homemaking is supposed (laughs) to be? I mean, so the idea, at least in the context of the kind of um, modern apartment, if you will, Mm -hmm. or what I'm talking about present time in the urban apartment, um, the notions of modernity are very much manifest in a kind of um, emphasis on hygiene and science. So a lot of the periodicals emphasize the ways in which apartments should be clean or windows should be open and that there's a, that, that you'll have an editorial from somebody called Dr. So-and-so, mm-hmm. right? And then you'll have a kind of ed- an exchange from a reader and a reply from that doctor about a particular problem in the home, you know, that has to do with issues of cleanliness and being hygienic and being modern and the, you know, that, that, the idea, it's like, anyway, for sure, it's Sabriamieni is used a lot. Um, so, like, the, the idea of being kind of contemporary and modern is very much part of the conversation, right? That you want to have these efficient, scientific, clean homes. Now, mind you, and this is the question I always get every time I've ever given a paper about this project at a conference is, wait a minute, like, who could possibly afford to do that. Well, very few people, but I'm making the argument that it was a kind of aspirational um, idea, right? That these ideas are kind of out there in the culture and they're aspirational. And they're not just Russian because like obviously the turn of the century, you see this everywhere. Absolutely. And so many other places I was finding really interesting kind of like connections between like what I'm reading in Russia and when I was reading in Latin America, for example, at different places, like, you know, and like, especially after like, liberation you're looking at like new welfare states and things like that like right. these are the conversations that are coming up at the turn of the century that just it doesn't I, I think that there's almost like this idea of like Russia being kind of stuck in the past in this moment and it's like right. everyone was kind of feeling that at the time you know no that's ab- absolutely true I mean absolutely true I you know I'm thinking about um you know, the, just the idea of modernity itself, if you mm-hmm. look at it in the domestic context, it is almost always kind of manifest with these ideas of science, right? Yeah. And, and science in that context means like keeping the germs away and bacteriology or whatever it's yeah. called, you know, keeping all that away and having clean homes. And, and child you know, rearing, yeah. All child that. rearing, bathing or swaddling mm-hmm. or whatever it is, right? Um, all of that. All of that. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. I realize I got the chapters backwards. That's the first. I do that chapter and then I do the nostalgic (laughs) one. That's funny. (laughs) It's been a while. (laughs) Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's past, present, future in any event. But, so can um, you um, can you walk us a little bit through uh, like in the second chapter like in present time hygiene in the urban apartment? Can you yeah. walk us through what what those urban apartments actually look like? Obviously, like a lot of Russians begin to migrate to the cities during this time and they start living in these apartments. So what yeah. do they look like? What are these designated spaces um, like? How do they involve? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it you know it bears saying that what I will describe really was available for a very small percentage of people. You right, have to just right. yeah, yeah. That. because we know well from a variety of sources, secondary and primary, that at this time when there was a huge rapid industrialization urbanization, you really do have peasants coming to the city part time. They you know mm-hmm. go back and forth. And when they're in the city, they like literally have whole families living in a corner of an apartment. But that isn't to say that those people weren't also didn't also have access to these publications that gave them dreams of something different. Right. Um, But the apartment that is depicted in these prescriptive texts, these published texts, you know, my they usually had like a, a, a bedroom for a room for children. Right. I think I have a picture of this in my book, like the there's a picture of like the child's room, which might have, you know, a couple of beds and like somewhere to put your clothing. It's very modest and small, obviously by our standards. And part of the efficiency, I love this, is that some of the furniture that's advertised and depicted is also very efficient. So you might have like, what are those called? Like the beds that come down from the wall? Like a Murphy example, bed. Looking, a Murphy yeah. bed, right? So there's a, a lot of kind of space, a lot of emphasis on, being very kind of conservative with space because there was so little space in the city at this time. Um, And again, like the kitchen would be very small and things would be very close to one another. And, and so the rhetoric was that that ultimately created efficiencies, right? Because you could do things quickly if you have the table, like I said, near the sink or whatever, or the shelf. And in your third chapter, I was really enjoying reading your description about um I was like very fixated fixated on like the jubilee of 1913 for some reason uh-huh, uh-huh, and I just because I just uh-huh. find like you know commemorations and, what, like, what about I, it was exciting <laughs> I mean it was just the way that you kind of described it and just like uh-huh. understanding how Russians celebrated the past I find really interesting yeah and so um yeah, you were kind of discussing public nostalgia, and that was kind of like I, I can never pronounce the word correctly. I have it written in my questions: tercentenary of the tercentenary, Romanov, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, of like the Romanov dynasty. So it was like, okay, how do you kind of contend with this like long history during this time where like obviously Russians are looking towards the future in many ways, yeah. but also with like a lot of baggage from the past. So, yes. Like, that whole chapter was like really fascinating. I kind of fixated on that one moment. But can you talk a little bit about like? Yeah, obviously, like, what is the Russian fixation with the past? And how did this moment um, really come to pass in your book? Well, one of the one of the arguments I'm trying to make, 
<laughs> is that there is actually not a disjuncture between the impulse to look backwards at the Romanov dynasty in this mm-hmm. moment, you know, to celebrate it publicly in 1913 and so forth, and the fact that there's a huge industrial wave that, you know, politics are kind of ramping up all over the place, that a lot of people are looking toward the future. The argument that I'm trying to make is that modern time itself is necessarily invested in the layering of all of these at once. Right. It, basically, it is the dynamic of the, of the layering itself that makes it modern is what I'm suggesting, because Mm -hmm. there's a kind of self-consciousness about the layers, (laughs) right? That that there is a past, a present, and a future, and that the present, the moment in which we're living, is invested with all of the above. So therefore, if you think about the obsession with the states or the, the, whatever it is, (laughs) tercentenary, just tercentenary that happens in 1913, the Jubilee and all of that, or the even the reflections of childhood nostalgia and so forth, that that is necessarily part and parcel of what it means to be modern. Right. And you also, you, you dedicate some time in this chapter, which I think this was one of like your meteor chapter, your like the chapters mm-hmm. that had more meat on it. So like I found, mm-hmm. I found a lot of like really interesting dynamics to it. Um, and you mentioned like educated and artistic elites and like this fear of like the fading peasant tradition um, as well as like, you also discuss like how elite Russians use the past to legitimize their peace in the present. Can you talk a little bit about that and how they kind of hope to integrate these like rural aesthetics into yeah. these like new urban ones? Of course. Yeah. I mean, a lot, so <clears throat> a lot of kind of a lot, and it's fairly well known, a lot of artists and collectors and so forth at the turn of the century uh, were very interested in kind of preserving peasant traditions, right? Mm-hmm. So at the very moment when those, because peasant traditions are imagined to be national traditions, right? right? Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of deliberate attempt to maintain and continue this kind of Russian national consciousness, if you will. Um, and a lot of that is invested in this idea of the peasant being in the past, right? right. I mean, never mind that there are peasants here now. But it's almost as though like the past peasant is kind of created, right, by the artists or images of the peasant are created by the artists themselves or the craftspeople and so forth to kind of keep that alive as part of the Russian national modern definition of itself, right? So in some ways, that's a maybe more concrete way of understanding the relationship between past and present. Because if because Russia isn't Russia without like the peasant, um, right. uh, the peasant, well, without the peasant, but without the crafts that are associated and the designs that are and off, some of which are very domestic, the spoons or the, you know, the plates or the things that we very much associate uh, with peasant life and peasant craft um, basically become part of the modern present and, and artists understanding of themselves. I mean, of course, the irony is that the peasants themselves might be like, I don't know why I am making these things that my grandfather might have made in these, in these, you know, workshops that you are, you are creating on your estates, but I'll do it because it certainly gives me more resources than it would not to. Right. Right. It's it's this kind of funny 
modern kind of or modern-ish kind of system that's asking peasants to almost impersonate a version of themselves from some past that's romanticized. Right. And um, you also discuss, um, you, you, you spend significant time discussing like memoirs and nostalgic yeah. narratives of um, childhood that I found really yeah. interesting. And I think you, you emphasize, I mean, feel free to speak about someone else, but I think you, if I'm not mistaken, you were, yeah. you highlight a significant portion of it to um, the right. Let me see if I can pronounce it. I think it was, yeah. it was a Karuzina. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about how, like what those kind of um, narratives really showed you about, the, the past and, and Russia? Sure. So actually in Barbara Engel's book, I think it's the book that's about divorce and marriage. She focuses a lot on kind of merchants and a lot of merchants, um, actually the women wrote, wrote memoirs. So there are a lot of memoirs that, um, that really archive the experiences of I don't know what the class, middle, upper middle, whatever, you know, merchants is a big, a big category, but you know, with middle, upper middle class um, values and experiences. And there's in all of these memoirs, there, there's a kind of formula and Tolstoy writes about that formula, right. And how, or uses that formula, I should say of, you know, you always kind of start with childhood and then you move to youth and so forth. And so on. there's a kind of arc of, of the story of one's life. So there's a, a significant portion of these memoirs that are devoted to, to childhood. And the childhood that is described is very much described within the context of a kind of nostalgia, you know, which is not shocking, yeah. um, and on the estate, right? That the kind of the space of the estate becomes a really important stage for the description, of course, of everyday life, for the description of the past, for the child, you know, for one's childhood and so forth, and the kind of kind relations with one's nanny and one's teachers and, and all of that. So there were just really rich and kind of beautiful descriptions of that of that experience. So then those are written, you know, some of those are written in like the 19, you know, certainly mid-century, but they reflect or some of them were written earlier, but they were yeah, like back. the earlier period. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so chapter four, revolutionary time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As you can imagine, this was my favorite chapter. <laughs> I'm shocked, Rosemary. Yeah, I know. What a shock. <laughs> I like Soviet stuff. Um, you start us off with that famous line that was written after uh, the death of Lenin, which is right. Lenin lived, Lenin lives, and Lenin will live. Yeah. I... 1000% got goosebumps when I read it because it's been so long since I'd read that line. I think maybe since yeah. undergrad. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it was just like, what a great way to start us off to thinking about revolutionary time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was wonderful. So can you tell us a little bit about like what revolutionary time looked like? Did the Bolsheviks embrace the past or consider the past as something that should be confronted and swept away? Or was it more layered than that? I mean, I th- the reason I start with the Mayakovsky quote, like you said, is because it, it obviously reminds us of the ways in which the Soviet state, on some level, like intended or felt it could mm-hmm. control time, right? Right. Right. And, you know, how everything, when Lenin dies, everything stands still. I think I described yeah, that. Even as preserving well. his body. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so it's a way of kind of defying time, right? Yeah. Um, that's powerful. Uh, the argument that I make about revolutionary time is very is kind of similar to the overall argument of the book, which is that revolutionary time 
really, um, especially in the context of, you know, the kind of space of the home, um, really relies on this kind of merging of moments from the past, the present, and reflecting toward the future. Of course, revolutionary time is particularly invested in that utopian future is the kind of collective utopian future. But that future, in many ways, looked like and resonated with the ideas about modernity and science and Mm -hmm. cleanliness and all of that that we found in the earlier publication. So the kind of values of science and present and modern that we found earlier were, of course, there as well in the Soviet context, just really um, in the service of creating a, a communal home and a notion of kind of collectivity if you will, and Mm -hmm. always gazing to the future, of course. I mean, all the rhetoric is about the future in the Soviet context. But we know this, it's not a huge revelation. There's also an embracing of the Russian past, per se, as part of the creating of a kind of Soviet identity and also Soviet time. So that what we find is that it's kind of all necessary to create this idea of, um, of revolutionary time. And do you think temporality um, that was featured in like women's magazines and periodicals during this period differed from what you covered in previous chapters? Did, did, did like these aesthetics, especially like within the home, look any different? I mean, I think the the answer there is so. In other words, what's Soviet about Soviet time? And that's also yeah. a question that I kind of attempted to tackle in the conferences and got good discussions going yeah, on. I think and I wrote it down as a sub question, like what makes time Soviet or something like that? Right, or, yes. yeah. I mean, which is, I think a fascinating question. I, I would suggest it has an awful lot to do with, you know, uh, the idea of communal that, I mean, mm. maybe it's a lame answer, but that's really what I came down to in the end. It's like the emphasis on the communal apartment, right. As, and, and the role of the state, of course, in creating the communal apartments and so forth. I mean, beyond that, there, you know, you one can make arguments about continuity. Right. <laughs> Actually, that you might one might be surprised to find. So my my argument is kind of I wouldn't say it's an argument about continuity, because I think the idea of the collective is incredibly important and the very deliberate kind of investment in utopia if you will i mean i know marx hated utopias but there there was a way like it is in terms of the emphasis on the future right that we will live really together in harmony and all of that so i would say that those are the things that really define it as soviet per se although some of the magazines like i said had runs that started in 1910 and went until 1930s you know, yeah. the aesthetic might have changed, but a lot of the messaging didn't. Right. And in your concluding chapter, um, <laughs> you make a number of observations, obviously, about like the post-Soviet experience and like nostalgic ideas about the past, particularly yeah. especially like the Soviet past, because obviously it's the post-Soviet experience. Right. Do you think time and home really continue to sit at the center of how Russians self-identify? Well, that's a great question. Well, it's I a hard just talk, question, I it's know. It's a hard question. So I'm going to back off of it for a second, but I'll come back around and you'll push me if I forget. But I have to say that that last chapter was my very favorite chapter to write. And I wrote it like in a weekend. Oh, <laughs> <this> wow. <laughs> and because it really was, 
<clears throat> based on a trip that I took to Moscow with a friend of mine that I reference in the book. Um, and it was really like us, you know, obviously I read a lot and all of this. I spent time in the library. But beyond that, we just walked around the city. Right. And we kept being really struck by, and this, you know, I say this now and it seems banal, but we were struck at the time by the ways in which like there were these kind of layerings everywhere of past and present, like where right. you would walk down the main boulevard and you, you walk into a restaurant that like looks like a peasant hut, for example. And that's like, it's totally commercialized and that's what you're buying, but you're buying nostalgia, right? For the Russian past. And then you walk up the street and there's a Soviet flag. And it was, uh, there was also a display in like the Dom Knigi of all these biographies of Stalin, because it was a, the anniversary of the war, May Day when we were there, I think. It was May. And so yeah. it was like this kind of like celebration of not just Soviet, but that is in Stalin, but of, of, you know, the Soviet past and the Russian past and, you know, the kind of obviously almighty technological future of Russia today, of the post-Soviet moment, right? So it's like all there, all at once, right before you. Right. <laughs> and <clears throat> so I would say that these ideas about time are, in fact, central to post-Soviet understanding. And I would also say in the Russian context, the home, you know, has a particular yeah, I was role. Ask you. Yeah. Yeah. That the home has a particular role because of the nature of private life, because of the nature of public life, I could say that because of the nature, the heaviness of the state, whether we're talking about the 19th century or the 20th, gives particular meaning to the kind of domestic spaces, right? And so I would say the answer to your question is simply yes, that there is something particular, I would argue, about how important time and temporality and especially I mean I, I I kind of wince to say private but I think I mean private time uh, <clears throat> has in the in the post-soviet context as well as in in the modern Russian context in general and I just I found that so interesting and especially with that last chapter because obviously when I think about the post-soviet experience like I go back to thinking about like Svetlana Boim like future of nostalgia mm -hmm. and I think one of the things that this book was really useful for is kind of just breaking me out of the kind of binary that I understand time as something as like fixed right and thinking about time as something that's like a like almost as a verb something that's continuously kind of created and recreated and right. renegotiated in the present yeah. and thinking about the future Mm -hmm. And so, like, that's something that I think this book really did kind of, like, help me sort of, like, break out of. Because, of course, I was going into it thinking, okay, is this going to be a book about, like, restorative nostalgia or reflexive nostalgia? Like, right. what type of nostalgia? I'm like, wait, no, this is, like, a totally different framework. Right. And between, like, your book and, like, I just uh, interviewed Dr. Bustamante a couple of days ago and on his yeah. book. And obviously, it's about time and memory in many ways. And yeah. I'm thinking, like, okay, so now I'm seeing that there's, like, you know, like, we're kind of just pushing past this. Like, in the field in general, just thinking about it. In that way, and I found it super interesting. And another one of the takeaways that I really enjoyed was kind of um, uh, challenging my own assumptions about like the distinctions between the late imperial mm -hmm. state and the early Soviet era, and realizing that they're really not that different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the way that you're talking about and like how these physical spaces emerged. Obviously, there was like you know looking to the future in many ways and like changes, but like it really a lot of their. Um, like there's a lot more continuity than I expected to see. Like we tend to look at the revolutionary era as this kind of like break from what was right. past and just moving present. And that's a lot muddier 
than we than we actually think about. I mean, you've just made me very happy for many reasons. <laughs> because, <laughs> because two of the things I would hope or ideas I would hope that would uh, people who do read this book would take away are precisely those. The kind of like, you can't see me, but I'm going like my <laughs> like moment when you realize, oh my gosh, like time is a category. Time yeah. is a category, right? Super exciting. And it really opens up so many possibilities, you know, and of course, Bustamante's work, same, right? That same kind of set of ideas. And I think it's just a very productive idea for understanding, well, historical problems, but also contemporary ones, I would argue. And also, secondly, the choice to go across that, you know, that that sacred revolutionary divide was very much by design. And I'm glad that that worked for you as a reader and seemed somewhat convincing. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I and appreciate it's that. So, and it's just so, uh, the other thing I wanted to really commend you about, and I'm, I'm not like, you know, I'm not kissing ass because obviously you're my, you're my <laughs> advisor, but because I literally, like, as I was reading, I'm like, this is a really beautifully written book. Like, oh it was gosh. beautifully written. Like, the Thank prose you. was unbelievably well done like I think especially in like your first and last chapter the way you kind of like introduce it and bookend it like it was really really like compelling to read and to follow through and because like I think that was necessary almost I mean it's obviously like it it shows like your 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 writing abilities but I think it was necessary to do that because this book could have easily been so heavily like philosophical and theoretical that the reader Mm -hmm. could just get lost in it Mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. the fact that you were able to write so kind of like elegantly but also very simply shows that mm-hmm. like the complexity and like the time that you dedicated to this book so all of that really comes out really clearly in the book well you're making me so happy <laughs> I really really appreciate that I do care about writing and I I yeah anyway thank you and it's a, and it's a, honestly it's very refreshing obviously you got a lot of very traditional monographs in the field and sometimes that's necessary especially like your first or second book or whatever but yeah um writing in a way that's very engaging especially when you can tell that like the topic needs it is, is a very different kind of skill set in, in general so thank I think you. that like came out really beautifully I appreciate that thank of you of course well Dr. Friedman thank you so much for chatting with me today about your book and your experiences as a researcher and of course for the important work that you do Oh my gosh, thank you. I really enjoyed this, Rosemary. Thank you. Dr. Friedman's book, Modernity, Domesticity, and Temporality, is available for purchase via Bloomsbury Publishing. Thank you all the listeners for joining in. Bye-bye. Thanks.